Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Jeff Kanata. And Devendra Hardwar, not here today. I think he's at South by Southwest, right? So uh, we needed to soldier on with this week's episode, regardless of Devendra's presence, uh, but we hope he's having a great time down there. In the meantime, we have a great uh, pinch hitter. Bradford Oman is the weekend editor at SlashFilm.com. He goes under the name Ethan Anderton on the site. Brad, welcome back to SlashFilmcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's good to be back. Brad, uh, you wrote a review for Kong Skull Island, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So looking forward to chatting about that movie with you. Uh, in the meantime, wanted to just mention a couple things. Uh, firstly, we are recording this episode like a little bit early. We're recording just a few days after the last episode, so there's not going to be a what we've been watching or anything like that. Instead, uh, all we're going to do is review Kong Skull Island, and then we have a nice After Dark for you. Uh, now, I need to admit, I made a mistake, Jeff Kanata. In the last episode of the Slash Filmcast, I said, hey, there's going to be an After Dark today, and then we never did one. So Yeah, no, that's a lie. That's called a lie. Uh, so a is. lot of people you know, tweeted and emailed and said, hey, uh, Dave, I think you left the After Dark out of the episode. Nope, we simply didn't record it. Uh, so We will today. We will today. So there's definitely going to be an After Dark today. Uh, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, find more episodes of our podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, but yeah, let's get straight to our review of Kong Skull Island. These are photos of an island in the South Pacific. The place where myth and science meet. We use explosives to shake the earth, helping us to map the surface of the island. You're dropping bombs. Mm, scientific instruments. I see trouble on the way. Is that a monkey? You knew that thing was out here? I'm sorry for your man, Colonel. But if you want to make their sacrifice worthwhile, get us home with proof. Monsters exist. Whoa, 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 whoa. Your friend there can put that down. That was from the trailer for Kong Skull Island, uh, the new film by director Jordan Vote roberts I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A team of explorers and soldiers travel to an uncharted island in the Pacific, unaware that they are crossing into the domain of monsters, including the mythic Kong. This movie has an amazing cast. Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, John C. Riley, John Goodman, Corey Hawkins... Uh, and a bunch of other very talented folks. And this is kind of one of those movies where a, a big studio took a, uh indie filmmaker who had, until this point, only made kind of small, contemplative, uh, but very good movies and gave them a massive budget to make a blockbuster. I'm thinking other examples of this include Colin Trevorrow with Jurassic World uh, and also Gareth Edwards with Godzilla. Uh, and it has worked out to varying degrees of success in the past. Uh, but uh, Brad Oman, in your review of Kong Skull Island at SlashFilm.com, you seem to think it worked out really well. I'm going to quote from the review here. Overall, Kong Skull Island is one gnarly monster movie 
that doesn't hide the monsters in the darkness or create tension by having them lurk in the background. Instead, it puts monsters front and center in the spotlight, and they come through with shining colors. Kong has never been more thrilling, and his nasty opponents make for such compelling monster fights that you'll never even... I'm sorry, that you'll be even more disappointed in the fact that we didn't get to see Godzilla do this much in his own return in 2014. Kong Skull Island never loses steam. It plows through an endless array of vicious monster attacks, all presented through a lens that masterfully captures the action scenery and delightfully grim adventure that Jordan Vote Roberts has assembled on screen. Uh, that is a ringing endorsement. So let's talk about uh, this, this idea of, of not hiding the monsters, right? Like, I, I think one thing we've heard about this movie is that it does not hide the monsters like a movie like Godzilla. Godzilla was only in maybe... 20 minutes out of the two-hour runtime of that film. Uh, but you seem to really appreciate the fact that Kong takes a huge part of this movie's runtime. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, right from the get-go, as soon as the army unit and, you know, these explorers arrive on the island, you see Kong in full view. Like, he, he's not hiding. He, you know, he's just standing there uh, after the bombs are dropped on the island waiting to, you know, meet these people who have are starting to mess with his home. So it's you re, no, first of all you see Kong right away but then the monsters that all show up throughout uh again you know they're they they come out in plain sight during the day there's no you know it's not nighttime so they're not obscured by the darkness or anything like that they're all out in the brightness and they all fight Kong throughout the movie and and I don't think we've had a monster movie like that in a while Godzilla you know they really obscured him for most of the movie until he got his big shiny moment to fight the Mudos uh you know in, around the third act and so even even something like Cloverfield, you know, they kept that monster secret for a long time. You don't really get to see much of him in, in that movie either. And so a monster movie on this scale with this kind of action is something that felt really refreshing to me. How about you, Jeff Kanata? You know, do you appreciate that they showed you, you know, the full Monty in terms of monsters or would you have preferred they kept a little bit more obscured? I mean, Kong has no pants, so it is the full Monty. Yeah. Uh, there, there's – I kept wanting he to also see has no he also has no genitalia as well. So well, it's uh, you know you can argue that it's under some fur. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of that. I don't want to. But I I was the the tone of this movie made me wonder at several times if we were gonna if we were gonna have our our intrepid band of of humans uh, run into a like school bus sized Kong droppings because uh, <laughs> I felt like that that was in the tone of this movie certainly possible. Um, this movie starts like 20 minutes of um, pretty much the worst uh, character uh, establishment I've seen outside of a Michael Bay movie. I mean it is it is straight from the Michael Bay play, playlist. It is literally just quick flashes of the most lip service – shorthand like these are who these people are make sure there's no downtime people are going to get bored we better put music to this this is oh god quick 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 this guy's a badass okay moving on she's cool okay moving on you know it's it is uh impatient it is um abrasive it is uninteresting it is terrible yeah let, let's talk actually just before you move on uh, from that point like we, we talked about this movie green room that we saw last year the jeremy solnier movie yeah. and how uh that writer director hates exposition right he hates people talking in ways that feel unnatural right. this movie is the complete opposite of that kong skull island opens with people just stating exactly who they are 
what they're doing, what their life mission is. Uh, there is no mystery, and there's also very little intrigue in these characters. It just yeah. is just and straight the relationships up. Relationships between them are preposterous and bizarre. Yeah. Uh, everything is done, is given as little time as, as possible. Scenes are three lines. We're in, we're out, and the transition is is loud, rocking music. It is, it is a movie that is entirely impatient. Um, but then you learn why it's impatient, what it's getting it's impatient for. The 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 twenty minutes at the beginning, I was convinced I was going to hate this movie, and uh, I was like, "Ugh, this is the Michael Bayification of all of this crap." Then the action starts, which is what they were impatient to get to, and I had an absolute blast with this movie. There it is. I, I am so on Brad's page. I, I echo everything he said. Every moment in this movie that's spent with our characters is a waste of time. <laughs> Every moment is is poorly done. I mean, aside from some lovely John C. Riley work, uh, I just he's a blast and a joy in this movie. But Every other character I genuinely could not care less about. They they are fodder for action sequences. And my goodness do those action sequences make up for that stuff. I have often been chided by audiences uh, of the things that I make uh, for not being able to have fun in a, a Transformers movie, for example, of, of being um, uh, distracted by all of the – insane inane things that happened and and that happened with the characters the way people talk the stupid plot holes the the garbage characters all that stuff uh, i can't get past i can't explain why i can get past it here but i think it is what brad was talking about in the idea of it is a the kind of monster movie we don't get anymore i mean i guess you could equate it to big giant uh, Transformers fighting each other or big giant Pacific Rim uh, uh, what were those things called? Uh, Kaiju. Kaiju, yeah, fighting each other. But this is it is so inventive. Every action sequence is is wildly different than the last. They are all completely over the top. I was bursting out laughing with things that were happening uh, because the movie I th- I think for the most part the movie knows what kind of movie it is there are times when I go, wait, no, you, you're not trying to pull off that, are you? Because you're not that kind of movie. And so there are times when I think, well, it, it, it does think it's trying to create some kind of serious uh, emotional thing when really that's not at all what's best about this movie. When, it, when it's clicking on all cylinders, when it's just showing me <laughs> nutty, over-the-top, uh, giant-scale uh, action sequences, I am having an – a ton of fun with this movie when for example like the very end of this movie which we'll talk about in spoilers i, I was like no you're i'm sorry you're not allowed to do that because that's <laughs> not the movie we're in um but i, I want to talk about you know five or six wonderful moments in spoilers that that i was just applauding and laughing and having a great old time i mean we get full samuel L. jackson in this movie you know get this motherfucking kong off my motherfucking skull island you know it's like it is, it, it, it is a B movie done with triple A budget, and when it's doing that, I was just having a blast. Interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people really enjoy this movie, and uh, certainly the Rotten Tomatoes indicates that like critics are on board with this. 
I uh, did not enjoy the movie as much as you guys, but I will talk a little bit about the things I liked about it. I think the visual effects are absolutely incredible. You know, I think that particularly the creation of Kong, uh, he is the most believable character in the entire movie. <laughs> yes, he is the true. most human character in the movie. Like, he's yeah. the one I feel the most sympathy for. He's the one who feels, like, the most fully realized, uh, most fleshed out. Like, I actually understand his motivations, <laughs> unlike most of the humans. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, of course, but I thought he's a wonderful creation. And I think visually the movie uh, overall looks great. The the island, the production design, it just all looks very convincing to me as uh, a place that's kind of not out of this world, but kind of uh, not someplace you'd easily recognize, kind of exotic and, and weird and off-kilter and maybe full of danger. Um, and so just the look of it, the feel of it, I was on board with. I think some of the set pieces were also really great. You know, uh, Jeff, you mentioned this helicopter scene. Not going to get too much into it, but there's a scene involving helicopters that I think is spectacularly it's done. It's spectacular. Yeah. It and, really is. And it's the moment where I went – I sat up in my chair and went, oh – Maybe we're going to have some fun here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think John C. Riley also, yeah, really works well. He probably is the character that works the best for me out of all the characters, and like the human characters. And uh, that character could have been terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think I've seen that kind of character over and over in movies. Like, um, I think Woody Harrelson plays that in in the movie um, um, uh, Twenty Twelve. He's he's like basically that like insane guy. Wow. And obscure reference, Jeff, but nicely done. Yeah, it's a movie no one should see. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I feel like I've seen that that comedic turn, you know, and it so often falls flat and John C. Riley just just nails it. He's just he's just a blast to watch. I agree. He is able to balance pathos and vulnerability and also wackiness and uh, and like intuition, you know, this is a guy who knows what's up. He's uh, he's been on this island for a while. He knows what's going on. So uh, I, I thought his character was was great and uh, and well played. I think like the 2014 Godzilla movie, the big problem with this movie is that you don't give a crap about any of these people other than John C. Riley. You know, you don't care about what happens to any of them. Their relationships are wildly implausible. Uh, and anything that's not action, I think, is uh, very poorly done. Like the the characterizations, like what what motivates these characters, and not only that, it, I don't think the movie did enough to get me to buy these characters, even on a surface level. You know, dude, I couldn't um, agree more with you, Dave. Every moment that's not action in this movie is is garbage. Yeah, I mean, even uh, Tom Hiddleston, he's introduced uh, as you know James Conrad. Nice reference there. As the ultimate badass. And actually, the introduction scenes are pretty good. Like you said, very Michael Bay. If you watch Armageddon, that movie, Michael Bay is able to introduce characters in two lines and an establishing shot of the character. And then you kind of get that character. And there's like 14 of them. Right. And there's 14 characters. There's a ton of characters. And uh, that's one of the things that this movie does as well. But then uh, with the case of like James Conrad played by Tom Hiddleston – he does almost nothing badass in this movie. You know, like, <laughs> it, it's. It, it, uh, there's, like, one scene where arguably he does something cool, but really, the movie introduces him at a, as a badass and then does nothing to really follow that through. Samuel L. Jackson is supposed to be a character that's going slowly insane. 
uh, I didn't really buy it. You know, I think he's a, a badass, but he does things in this movie that I just I didn't feel like the character was there. So I'm saying I'm okay with action movies that have one note characters, but this movie like had one note written on the page, and I felt like didn't even get me to that point where I believe the one note. Do you know what I'm saying? You're um, not wrong. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate your agreement. Brad, what do you think? Do you agree uh, that the characters are pretty worthless in this movie? I, I agree for the most part. I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to call anything without monster action and garbage or say that the characters <laughs> are worthless, only because, like we talked about, John C. Riley is fantastic. He's definitely the saving grace of the human characters in this movie. He, he brings a lot of heart to it, and even if you watch the Kong Skull Island trailers and you were like, oh, that character's going to be stupid, I guarantee you, you will be surprised by how much you love him as a character because a lot of it is a testament to how great of an actor John C. Riley is, but they just do a really good job with making you like that character for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I totally agree that Tom Hiddleston is completely oversold as a character that's supposed to be cool, but then they do nothing with him. The bond that is supposed to exist between him and Brie Larson's character uh, doesn't feel like it's genuine. I do love. Oh, Samuel- there was a there was a bond. I didn't not even point. <laughs> um, Samuel Jackson. I I actually disagree with what you said there about how you you don't necessarily buy into like his turn to crazy because I I think that that moment when you meet his character, you see that he's about ready to go home, but he's clearly not ready for it. And I think you get the idea that he's a char- he's a guy in the military who only feels right and at home when he's in the shit and facing somebody like Kong who kills his, his, his men. And is this, you know, force he hasn't dealt with before is like him getting back into that groove. And like, it's, it's his like end all be all like, this is his, you know, final mission. And he's like going all out for it. So I, I, I totally bought into that. Yeah. I, I think you're right. Like I get his motivation and, uh, and believe it on a basic level, but it feels to me so much like this movie is going for an apocalypse now kind of feel. Uh, and this is very obvious when you look at the IMAX poster of, of uh, Kong Skull Island. It's like a direct comparison to Apocalypse Now. A lot of the look of the movie is Apocalypse Now-ish in terms of the color palette. And so it felt to me like they were going for something grander with the well, Samuel Dave, L. Jackson character. You know, like what, something more insane with him. That what, I don't what think part of it's set during the Vietnam War do you not understand, oh, no, Dave? Good point. You're right. That's good shorthand for this guy is clearly out of his gourd. Um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really – I agree with you, Brad. Like on a basic level, it functioned that like this guy uh, – I understand why he wants to take the steps he takes against Kong and so on. But I, I don't know that I bought him as a character who was really descending into madness, which I think is what the movie was trying to convey. That's fair. Um, but I, I also do think that uh, as, as thin as the characters are, I think what helps it – and at least for me, that I wasn't completely bothered by it – was that the actors that portray them do a very good job with what little they are given. You know, you, you have Shea Wiggum and you have uh, John Goodman, Corey Hawkins, Jason Mitchell, uh, Toby Kebbell. And I think that they all get at least, you know, one good moment to like where they have like their scene that kind of defines their character. And it's not always the best. It's, it's not super deep. But then like when I think about something like uh, Aliens, I don't think all of the crew members in Aliens, you know, feel like they're more than thin characters either, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would say I said that there's a couple that work, but on the same scale, Aliens is the kind of movie that Kong Skull Island is, and you don't care about all those characters either, and it works just fine. Sure, but, they, you, but you care about the like, main characters in Aliens, you but know? they also seem like real but human see, beings. <laughs> that's well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I I bought into the characters more than you guys did, obviously, but I I maintain that the star of the movie is Kong, which is why 
you know, it works so well and it's around him. And the human star, even though they've hidden it, is John C. Riley. Um, like it's it's it amazes me that um, how much they're they're not pushing it, but it, I'm I understand why. But he is the like the core of the movie. He's the main human character uh, for reasons that you know you'll you'll find out when you watch the movie. And so because of that. I, I don't mind that the rest of the characters feel mostly disposable. There's a um, a guy. I think he's sort of uh, – he's the real jacked guy. I think he's kind of vaguely Asian looking. Um, <laughs> vaguely uh, Asian looking. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Maybe Pan, uh, Pan Pacific. You know, I don't know. Um, Pacific Islander. I, 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 oh, yeah. I'm uh, to, I think you're talking you know, about Eugene Cordero. OK. Yeah. I, I got, it got to the end uh, and I and – I, there's a shot with him with standing with everybody, and I went, "Did he ever say a line? Did, <laughs> I, I can't remember if that guy ever spoke." No, yeah, he definitely spoke. Did he? he? Definitely spoke, yeah. And the okay, thing is, so- and the other reason I think that I'm fine with the characters is because there are so many other like m- minor characters who like you think are going to be a big deal, but they end up doing much. Like uh, Tane Jen is there just to clearly help the international box office, at least in, you know, the U.S. cut of the movie. I don't know if she gets more to do in the, the cut that's, that will be shown in, right. you know, in Asian markets. Let, let, let's, let's actually pause a minute on this, okay? So there's a character uh, played by actress Tian Jing who uh, shows up for no reason, like uh, 20 minutes into the movie. Her na- her, the character's name is San. Shows up 20 minutes during the movie. Has, um, I am not exaggerating, four lines in the entire film. And you think, oh, well, when she's introduced, oh, that character is going to be a major uh, significant you know, factor in the movie. Nope, not at all. Uh, you know, international movies have now taken to actually having different cuts of the movie. Like I think when Iron Man 3 came out, that was a big thing with Iron Man 3, right? They had a, there's a different cut of the movie where the Asian characters have a larger role in the movie uh, to make that movie play better in China. Uh, and it felt to me like this is a similar thing, right? Like that wow. you have this character played by Tian Jing, who is a complete meaningless character in Kong Skull Island in the U.S. cut, but maybe in the Chinese cut of the movie, she actually has like a major role or some kind of subplot. Um, so, yeah, totally bizarre, though, in the, in the American version. But to your point, Brad, you were saying... All these other characters are really weirdly shoveled in there, but John C. Riley kind of redeems the movie. My position is that he's not quite enough to redeem the film. That's um, fair. I, I think one of the things that also uh, makes it kind of makes up for the fact that they're disposable is that you have these big names playing, or at least you know moderately well-known names um, playing some of these characters, and I think that that helps make for much more of a surprise when monsters start picking off some of them. I don't want to spoil any specific deaths or anything like that, but it makes it all the more shocking when all of a sudden a monster shows up and, you know, there goes another character. Like, you, there, I think there's plenty of people that you, maybe you're not expecting to get taken out right. because, because you recognize them, and I think that also helps. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, all right, guys, any other thoughts on uh, Kong Skull Island before we get to the spoiler section? The it's o- big and dumb, and I had fun. Everything about this movie is big. You know, the yeah. emotions are big. The mo- character motivations are big. The characterizations are big. Kong himself seems to be roughly like ten times the size of previous versions of Kong. Right? 
Yeah, he's he's. I, I think original King Kong was around thirty to forty feet tall, if I'm not mistaken. This one is way higher than that. He's like the size of a skyscraper. You know, right? He's not a person that would climb up a skyscraper. He's the size of a skyscraper. Yeah, I mean, he has so, to be as big as to fight Godzilla. So that makes right. Sense. Well, that's another thing. Is like this movie theoretically is part of uh, the studio's bid to have a shared monsters universe. Right? It's kind of their version of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, we'll see this weekend uh, at the box office whether it actually plays out. We're, we're recording this before the movie's actually out in theaters. Uh, the soundtrack, guys. Uh, it felt to me pretty on the nose. Rope? I don't know. It felt to me Is like... There, there, there's some sort of rule that says if you set something during the Vietnam War, you have to have credence. You have right. to have wall-to-wall credence, Clearwater. It just felt like a, a little much. Like having one or two songs, you know, that are from that time period that everyone recognizes. It's we, we feel like okay, you're kind of setting a tone, but it felt like almost Suicide Squad like in terms of how much yeah. it wanted to emphasize its uh, music budget, uh, and it did kind of get distracted. It, it, it again, it kind of reminded me of other movies that this movie does not live up to, and I'm not even sure if it's even trying to live up to. You know. So uh, I thought the, the soundtrack was a little bit overdone. But overall, Brad, sounds like you had a great time. Jeff Kanata, you had a great time. I thought the action was solid, um, but thought that everything else about the movie was left pretty wanting, and that kind of ruined my, my personal experience uh, of the movie overall. Uh, but let's talk about some specific stuff in spoilers for Kong Skull Island starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. Jeff Kanata, you have some scenes you wanted to run down, right? Oh, man, so many. I think the, I think the thing that's so fun about this movie is that it... it you know, kind of what Brad was referencing, when, when characters start getting picked off... It's fun because it's it really is a monster movie. It really is, um, you know, it has more in common with um, Friday the Thirteenth or or you know Nightmare on Elm Street. It's it's just it, watching people die in hilarious ways and uh, over the top, crazy, uh, you know, unbeatable odds, and that is so it, it's so much fun. The, the movie is having a blast with it, starting with that um, with that helicopter sequence. <laughs> just seeing how Kong effortlessly takes them all down and how out of the blue that is. And we're sort of inside that experience with those people and just completely overwhelmed the, the, the fact that there, there is nothing they can do to beat this guy feels awesome. It feels like, Oh my God, I, I turned to the person sitting next to me, uh, that I, that I went to the movie with and, uh, said you know, when all of the helicopters went down i was like it would be awesome if it just said the end right now it's just like <laughs> kong killed everybody <laughs> done um but you know it, it goes on it is Go really ahead. ballsy that the movie uh, hurriedly introduces you to 30 characters and then just kills you know half of them off in the first 15 minutes i thought yeah. that was and some of them uh, yeah. go out so ignominiously, you know. It's not there's no <laughs> there's no there's honor no, in it, right. right? I mean, my one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when uh, that one guy, the the, the sort of high ranking dude, w- decides he's going to sacrifice himself in a very you know platoon like you know he's got the two grenades. He's like, yeah, come get me, and it just like kicks him out of the 
away like a yeah. bitch. Yeah. It is so funny. It why is, why so is that funny? funny? I, I, I don't I don't know. I, I it's not funny. Was that was that it supposed to be funny? Because I felt like it. You know, it, you know what death it reminded me of. It reminded me of the personal assistant's death in the movie Jurassic World. You remember how her death yes. was uh, needlessly violent and gruesome, and it just felt like why? Why did you need to do that movie? You know, you could have just killed that person without. Uh, having you know this, this huge spectacular show of how his his big grand effort his heroic effort was completely worthless. It it feels like it's part of a different kind of movie that's much more dark than the actual movie is. Really? But see, I, 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 Brad, I, yeah, Brad, weigh in on this. What do you think? I, th- I think that the movie is that dark though. Like this movie was way more gruesome and like even gory than I thought it would be. And, and you like you talked about the Jurassic World kill. There's a kill that's very much like that, but even more gruesome in this when John Ortiz gets picked up by the like the flying, you know, lizard crazy bird things and yeah. gets gets limbs torn off. And like there are so many That moments. is not more gruesome. Than, I mean, it's it's more gruesome in terms of limbs getting torn off, but the Jurassic World kill lasted like 10 minutes. I'm exaggerating. So did this, dude. He was like they're just all watching him like <laughs> screaming yeah. and, they're, and they're picking him up and he's still alive in the air for a long time just screaming and then they and there are endless moments like that. Like you think you're safe for like like for maybe a couple Dude. minutes, and then all of a sudden something else comes out of nowhere and starts killing more people. John Goodman with the flash that keeps going off as it's as it's being he's going down the stomach of the monster and it's still hitting the flash in the in yeah. the belly. Dude, when this movie knows what it's doing, when it knows it's making you know late later Nightmare on Elm Street style like let's have a have fun watching how these kids die. Type, you know, that's when those movies turned into that. The first Nightmare on Elm Street is is a legit horror movie, but you know, by Dream Warriors and on, you know, it just becomes like, how inventive can we get with Freddy's kills? And the fun is watching this ridiculous, over the top murder of these kids. I think this movie is at its best when it's doing that stuff because it, that's the fun, you know take it to 11 kind of feeling that you get is just like, Oh my God. And, and that's why I think there are moments that, you know, like the very end, which we'll talk about shortly where it's like, you did not earn any of that. You didn't earn any of your character stuff where you're at your best is when you know, you're making snakes on a plane. It's when you know, you know, that sequence with, uh, Samuel Jackson standing in the middle of fire, just staring down Kong for no reason. Uh, it's just a B – it's B movie. It's embracing its B moviness and that's when it's the most fun. I think uh, one of the things you just pointed out that I really actually enjoyed about the movie is the scale. There's a ton of uh, images, shots of people just standing in front of Kong and you know, Kong obviously is, is a stand-in for the, the awesome power of nature, right? And uh, seeing them there and seeing them at that size, you know, even just in the poster, is uh, is really a sight to behold. But going back to the tone, uh, yeah, I, d- I don't know. Like, I guess B movie status, like we're supposed to then revel in the deaths of these people, you know? Yeah, um, I think we are. I think yeah. that's what the fun of the there, movie is. There were so many times when I was like, I was simultaneously horrified and shocked, but also laughing because of what was happening. Like, it's it's yeah. that kind of entertaining. Yeah, the guy that sits up, he's like, get on the – set up the um, – oh, what's the name of that big-ass gun? Uh, oh, man. The, the, the Gatling? Yeah, no, there's like a, – there's a specific name for it. But um, And and he's like – and he sets it up on top of that like triceratops head and he's like, yeah, I'm awesome. And he goes out like a bitch. 
mean, <laughs> forgive, forgive my phrasing. I don't mean it to be any kind of – I don't – I just am using that phrase. But um, – I think I agree with you guys in terms of the tone. I think like my problem with the movie is is not necessarily that uh, all these people get killed in horrible ways. It's that uh, I didn't care about a single one of them. You know, I think I think if even in movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, I think some of those movies do a, a pretty good job of uh, establishing those characters and, and making them making there be emotional stakes. Uh, and like you know, Brad, like you said, this is why the John C. Riley character is so important. But I, I wish there had been more than just the John C. Reilly character. You know, I, I think I could have taken this uh, horrible torture and gruesome murder of all these people if I had cared about the people who last until the end a little bit more. So you're not uh, wrong, David. I just feel like the reason I could have fun, I think, was that they were basically toys. They were little action <laughs> figures being smashed by Kong. You know, yeah. like. You know, he he steps on people. He throws. I mean, the whole the beginning of the movie is like this body flying at you from the sun, screaming. You know, and I feel like it's that it's basically ragdoll physics from video games writ large. You know, it's it's just a, a cacophonous medley of of zany deaths. And yeah. and I I don't know. I I was able to sort of shut off my logic sensors. And have fun with it. We talked to touch upon this earlier too, and like I think what helps is that it's it's this B movie, but it's presented with this huge, you know, triple uh, A budget. And I think what also helps is the visuals in this movie are stunning and gorgeous. Like there's so many um, amazing, like even breathtaking shots of not just the monsters, but just the the, the scenery and like. Uh, even sequences that don't really necessarily mean anything in the larger scale of things, they just look cool. Like uh, Tom Hiddleston's big moment is when he is running through an area that's where there's a poison gas around. He has a gas mask on and he's wielding a samurai sword and just slicing <laughs> monsters left and right. And like, there's no real reason for it to happen except it's just cool and it's it's just it's it's a very cool scene. And so I think seeing some of the stuff that would otherwise be silly be like taking care of you know with such great visuals also helps and I, I love little touches too like there's a sequence when uh in the opening where when the helicopters are arriving you get a quick insert shot of the richard nixon bobblehead and then when one of those helicopters goes down it, it's like a quick montage of all the stuff that's going wrong there's one quick cut back to that richard nixon bobblehead before the helicopter crashes and i just i love little stuff like that I think you know, that like it just feels to me like the movie is uh, reaching for something of grander significance. You know that that's why it invests so much in like it, it doesn't invest that much in building up these characters, but it invests something. It makes kind of hand wavy motions towards uh, building up some of these characters' backstories and their relationships with each other. And uh, I, I guess it feels to me like it's a it fails in trying to get to something deeper and more weighty rather than unabashedly embracing its non-weightiness. Uh, I, I agree. I could. I totally agree, Dave. I totally agree. And I, and I feel like n- no better time is that uh, illustrated than the total impatient lip service given to uh, um, them creating some kind of kinship with Kong. There's like oh. – it, it, is, it is the most like shorthand, stupid like, OK, the Kong – they're cool with Kong. Everything's cool. So when he saves them later, you just – you'll you understand why because they have this kinship. With, the reason that they decide to go save Kong is because they had this moment. It, you understand it. You've seen movies before. We don't need to actually do it. We'll just like show you this sort of you know uh, 
stand in for actual emotional connection because we all know the iconography. Let's just – we'll do that and you'll understand and we can do it. It's like that's how this movie is with everything and and that's sort of the Michael Bayification I think that I'm talking about. It's like you're not actually establishing any emotional moments. You're creating a, a, a visual image that's shorthand for those feelings you're supposed to have and we all know that that is what that represents. So – just take that, and then we'll get on to the fun stuff. Yeah, uh, some people uh, were speculating that maybe it was like a telepathic connection in the <laughs> in the uh, in the Slack film cast. I think someone mentioned like maybe there was like telepathy going on in there because otherwise, how else do you explain the fact that they go back for him at the end? You know. Um, well, they had that moment where she touched him like for no reason. She decided well, she's going to touch him, and then they I, touched I him. I don't think that's the that's the real takeaway though for why they they go back. Like I think that that is meant to help. I don't think that's meant to be like the full like you know reason because you also have to remember the reason Kong is there is to protect those people who will otherwise be eaten by the the skull crawlers. So not only are they going back to save Kong, but they're going back because they know Kong is the only person that's going to keep those people alive on that island from the rest of the monsters. So I think it's there's it's still not necessarily the most like emotional investment that you could have before giving the characters a reason to go save Kong but I think it helps logistically as far as like within the confines of the narrative is concerned oh no uh, it, the the narrative function of that moment is completely clear I think what Jeff is pointing to is that uh, it all it does is pay lip service to it, 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 it it's not a believable emotional turn for me for, when, yeah, no, I, 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 don't him at the end. Like, yeah, I don't disagree yeah uh, and and I guess my question, like I'm thinking out loud here, but my question is then, uh, you, know, you know, why even bother with any of that? Like, wouldn't it have been a better movie if they just didn't give a crap about any of that stuff? You know, and they just it's just like straight action, yes. and it was 90 minutes long instead. And yes. I think I would have liked the movie a lot better in that case. You're right. Yes. I mean, I think the movie already <laughs> does feel like it moves very, very fast, though. Like it was never a slog, or I never felt like I was it was slowed down, or I was bored, or anything like that. So. I don't know. I, I, I was bored for significant chunks of it. I think, especially when they were splitting off into three, uh, like they were, they had been split into three survivor groups that had been, tra- you know, like needed to converge in some way. Anyway, uh, I, I don't know why. I just did not enjoy this movie as much as you. And I think, like, because I, I felt like we, we we should evaluate movies on their own terms. Like you would never say of, of Fast and Furious Seven or Six, like. There wasn't enough character development, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, that movie knows what it's going for and it just does it really well. Uh, or those movies, I should say. And this movie, I felt like, uh, wanted to be a certain movie and then didn't really achieve that. And, and I feel like it should be evaluated that way. But uh, I could be completely wrong. So I'm Well, totally I, I think that, as I've been saying, you know, there are, there are moments when I think the movie knows exactly what it's doing. It knows exactly that it's trying to create this fun B monster film and and that's when it shines that's when it that is it is the most fun but like the ending which i think we should talk about uh the this sort of schmaltzy sentimental uh you know old old style um yeah eight millimeter <laughs> shot of john c Riley returning home and it's played as this emotional <laughs> moment, which, A, are we supposed to believe someone's filming it or why is it being shot that way? <laughs> yeah, that was um, my biggest problem. Is I was like, who's shooting this footage? <laughs> yeah. Um, or is this sort of supposed – it's like shorthand for it's a memory or wh- what's going on? I kind of felt like are, are we supposed to think that Brie Larson like came with him and is <laughs> recording this for some posterity? Uh, and then it's like the – 
it it lingers in this moment of him seeing his wife and son, and it's played with such lack of of self awareness. It is played completely straight and and as if we've been waiting to see this guy reunited with his family all the all movie long when right. he has been the comedic fun of the, he has been the comic relief the whole time. There's I don't care about him and his family. Yeah, you know it's. Yeah. it's I, I don't entirely agree. Um, I, I do think that the sequence is misplaced as being a, the bookend of the movie. I would have much rather preferred it played during the credits instead. But I think that there's much more. Well, it, some credits were playing while it was, was on screen, to be fair. Yes. Well, to, well toward, towards, towards the end. I yeah, think. yeah. 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 But I, I, th- I think that actually John C. Riley is the only character that did earn that kind of ending because even though he is comic relief – there's still plenty of heart and depth to that character. Like I, and maybe it's just me because I'm from the Midwest, but like the stuff like him talking about the Cubs and like the way he talked about, you know, thinking about whether or not his, you know, w- wife w- would remember him or was waiting for him. Like I actually bought in that stuff mostly because I think John C. Riley did such a great job with the character. So sure, he's funny and that kind of thing, but I think that 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 emotional ending was earned on some level i don't think that it was the best way to end that movie but i think that it was still good for that character i I agree with you jeff that the ending kind of sums up a lot of my issues with the film you know it feels (laughs) like it's trying to be this kind of uh deeper apocalypse now-esque uh thriller that happens to have this gigantic kong monster in it uh but then ends up kind of failing at that and then just delivering on the b-movie action in uh, admittedly a very a very big way and a very satisfying way i, I um, think that's that's proof to your point i i do i i as much as i want to give this movie credit for understanding what it what it's delivering when you see that ending you go oh no you don't know what you don't understand <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah i think that's a really yeah uh all right guys so as much as uh as much as I've enjoyed talking about this movie with you, uh, oh, we should also mention before I, I move on uh, that there was a stinger at the end. Do you guys stay for the stinger? I did yeah. not. I only heard after I left that, I, that there was a stinger, a Marvel yeah. Universe esque. Oh, okay, so Jeff, actually, the stinger makes the ending with John C. Riley make even less sense. Uh oh. Because what ends what ends up happening is you find out that uh, Tom Hiddleston's character and Brie Larson's character are trapped uh, in a room, like they've been brought to some room. After the incidents at, at uh, of Kong Skull Island, and uh, Corey Hawkins' character comes in and says, "Hey, we're at, you're at Monarch. Welcome to Monarch. By the way, uh, you know, underneath the Earth, according to my theory, my sub Earth theory or whatever, there are uh, there's a whole like universe of creatures." And then he starts <laughs> showing you these images, cinematic universe of creatures, a cinematic universe, and he starts showing you photos that uh, appear to indicate like Mothra. You know, uh, photos they of all, like Mothra art, already... right? Brad, am I characterizing this correctly? Yeah, it's it's Mo- yeah Mothra, Ghidra, and then like the the big like uh, like finale of it all is like I, I don't think it's an actual photo. I think it's more like a, like a cave painting or something, isn't it? Of of Godzilla fighting. Um, what's the name of right. the? Yeah, it's a photo photo of a painting is what I mean to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, then it cuts to black. And here's actually a really cool moment in the movie is you hear the Godzilla roar from the movie Godzilla, the 2014 Godzilla. It's the same sound effect. And that is like kind of an iconic sound effect because I heard it and I recognized it. You know, even though I've only seen that movie once, uh, I was like, oh, man, you know what that means. 
Uh, and I really appreciated that, you know, just that sound effect was so effective. Uh, but, yeah, Jeff, it makes the ending make even less sense because, what, they just let John C. Riley go, but then they kept everyone else? You know, mm-hmm. what's – Yeah. It raises some questions. He, uh, he's, the least, he's the least useful of them because he only spent 26 years there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speaking, of, um, speaking of useful, you know, why is Brie Larson even on this trip, guys? <laughs> uh, like this is a top secret governmental trip, and uh, she somehow gets on board to document it. It just—it's such a bummer to me because it makes no sense. She is such a great actress. I love her so much, and she literally is there to wear a tank top, and it's—it's so—it sucks. It yeah, sucks. She, she she does virtually nothing in this movie. There is a nice moment with her and Kong at the end, but she's she dude. That's one of my favorite things is she's literally in his hand down the gullet of the monster. <laughs> I thought that was so rad. And then it comes out and she's a mess and then like a minute and a half later is completely pristine and fine. <laughs> I love – I do. What I do love about the Tino is like it's such a complete like subversion of the normal you know Kong with the beautiful woman. And like rather than just like him carefully handling her, he just takes her and shoves her down that monster's throat and pulls, <laughs> pulls all of its innards out. Like it's like, like I loved that sequence so much. Yeah, it was it was pretty spectacular. You know what, what my favorite moment from the movie was? Like the one moment from the movie that genuinely surprised me was when that guy got his face impaled by that big spider thingy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because that just came out of no – like you did not – you did not even know that those creatures existed on this island. You know what I'm right. saying? So it's like it just came out of no – like that was not in the universe of possibilities that I thought could, thought could happen to that guy. That was um, that was one of the things I had, I had in my head when – right after they see Kong, they go down and they, they're in the, in, the, in the jungle. I thought to myself, why is no one saying, hey, if that's here, what else might be here? Right. And, and to be honest, it kind of annoyed me. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Finish what you're saying. What I was just going to say, and I kind of thought the movie was was just going to ignore that idea of the island having more crazy shit on it. But then the, you end, you get into that spider sequence. I was like, oh my god, yes, awesome! It's full of crazy stuff. And another moment that's amazing is when he shoots that bird. He's like ugly ass bird. And he shoots it, and then like a thousand yeah. of birds. Yeah, that was awesome. That was a great moment. That was a great moment. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of wish the movie had done more to – it felt a little bit too um, random to me. You know, like, oh, we need to kill this guy off so we'll have this other creature here. Oh, hey, this log he's sitting on also is a creature. You know, it, yeah. it just felt like there were – and it feels like uh, John C. Riley's character or other characters would kind of know what dangers lurk there. Uh, but I, I will say that the creatures that you do see are incredibly frightening, very well designed. It feels a lot more than like Pandora to me, like the the Avatar uh, world that everyone knows about from that culturally relevant movie, Jeff. Yes. That like like uh, Pandora is uh, is is kind of portrayed as oh this place is going to kill you, uh, but then there's only like a couple creatures that you end up meeting that that are dangerous. In this movie, it feels like, wow, like everything around you could kill you. I, I wish we had gotten even more of that sense of like menace, right? That there's – instead, it just felt like, oh, random thing comes and, and kills someone. And to me, that wasn't quite enough to build a sense of this world being menacing. <laughs> the other moment that's so great. And he's, when he's like, yeah, watch out for those ants. It, it sounds like a bird. It's a fucking ant. Yeah, it's a fucking ant. <laughs> so great, man. That yeah, was so that was great. that was good. Uh, but do you know what I mean? I guess I feel like there's a difference between just randomly offing people 
and then creating a sense that this world itself is a threat. You yeah. Know? Uh, like there would be scenes when they they need to get away from something and succeed, uh, and that has that happened with that spider thingy, but not many other times. It does feel like this is a world full of things that could kill you. Like I would never want to visit Skull Island, you know. Right. Uh, but I wish more had been done to create that atmosphere. Instead, it didn't. It didn't really feel like the movie was like I, I wanted to feel like every single scene these people could die at any second, and I never I, really felt that way. I, I, I think to, to to the movie's credit, I, I felt like. You know, Brad referenced this as well, that because there are all these big actors and some of them go out so abruptly yeah. uh, that I, I did feel like, OK, nobody's precious. Every, everybody is offable. Um, you know, anything can happen at any given time. It, 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 the out of nowhereness made it feel more like that, you know, crazy horror movie or crazy monster movie that it is, you know, that that a guy can be having a conversation and then it be picked up by a bird and brought and taken away or, you know, a guy could be talking and then a, a spider's leg goes through his head. All that stuff is it did feel so to surprising. you to you it worked then, yeah. Yeah, it was it was surprising and it and it that was the the shock that led to laughter most of the time, you know, the, yeah. the thing that it gets set up or not set up, you know, the thing that comes out of nowhere or that's set up and then is subverted by, you know, I several examples I gave earlier with where like this is the moment where the guy is awesome and no, he's not awesome. He just got murdered by the thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you know, Brad, I think you you were the one that brought this point up, but yeah, the the people who die are kind of surprising. John Goodman playing Bill Randall does not make it to the end of the movie, right? Yeah. John, John Ortiz is the guy that gets lifted up into the sky and gets torn apart by those those bird things. Right, Tian Jing, who plays Son, makes it to the end of the movie <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it is kind of surprising. Like I, I was impressed by how many people they were willing to off. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, I don't, I don't uh, know, Jeff. I think that moment when the guy like takes out the grenades and gets swatted into a, a wall. It's it hilarious. Just, it felt very cheap and exploitative and like cruel to me. You know, it's hilarious. It's I think it, I think, like, I think it is cruel, but that, I think that's part of the idea. Is like is like no one is safe. Any terrible thing can happen to any of these people. Yeah, I think Toby Kebbell is the one that goes out most unexpected. He, he his death is off camera. It's like we've set him up as being the sort of. This weird. By the way, all of that like dear Billy crap is so bad. Yeah, that's what so I'm talking bad. about. Like, there's there's stuff like that. I'm g- maybe giving the film more credit than it deserves, but I think with the Toby Kebbell uh, in in particular, I think we're supposed to put him in a place in our head where he's going to be awesome. You know, like he is set up as being. He's all alone. He's got that machete. He's kind of rad. He's got this, you know, kid thing going for him. And then he dies very early in the movie, very abruptly. I think it's one of those things where it's supposed to be subverting our expectations about that guy. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. Any other thoughts? Any other favorite moments from the movie, guys? I mean, I think um, I think there are several incredible action sequences that are just worth the price of admission to see them on a big screen. I loved the sequence when Kong uh, decides to have uh, lunch by pulling that squid out of the water. And, yeah. And it, that was awesome. It was awesome. Um, it was yeah. great, yeah. And uh, one thing I think uh, the director is good at uh, is getting – People, the, the Spielberg face out of people. You know, there were, were yeah. a lot of good Spielberg faces where, you know, people see something that's, like, beyond their comprehension. Right. And, uh, and you know, they have this look on their face that just evokes wonder. I really like that part. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is you know, this is I, I coined a phrase uh, talking about video games uh, a while back, and I, I think this movie is a perfect example. It's it's more fun than it is good. Here, here's what's so fascinating is. Uh, there's virtually nothing you guys have said that I disagree with. <laughs> like, and there's nothing is... that you've said that I disagree with. <laughs> but uh, yet, I just simply enjoyed this movie a lot less. I, th- you know, and part of it is also because we just reviewed Logan last week, which I thought was uh, a kind of superhero action movie that actually felt like it had stakes. You know, this is um, way more fun than Logan, dude. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. But I guess uh, Logan is more a David Chen kind of movie, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Bleak, well, bleak, heartless depressing <laughs> a David <laughs> Chen movie yeah a David Chen joint so uh, well thanks so much for listening to our review of Kong Skull Island stay tuned for an after dark discussing a bunch of random things find more episodes of our podcast at slashfilmcast.com email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com and our uh, theme song is written by adamwarrock.com our slash film court music was from simonmharris.com and also, uh, our spoiler music is from Kyle Hillinger. Uh, before we move on, Brad Oman, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, I write a slash film pretty much every day, so you can check us out there. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, and I have uh, several other shows. I have a video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. And I just started a new daily gaming show uh, called Newest, Latest, Best. It's on Anchor. Uh, you can find the link on my site or download the Anchor app from the App Store. Yeah, or anchor.fm is where you can find uh, Jeff's new show. You can get a dose of Jeff Kanata daily in your head now. So It's fun. It's fun. I'm having a blast with it. We just, it I think people are liking it too. It's cool. Cool. Find all my stuff at davechen.net or follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash davechen.net. Next week, uh, hopefully Devinder will be back. I actually will not be here. Uh, I am going to be taking a vacation for the first time in a very long time. Uh, I I think in the nine years of the Slash Filmcast, there's maybe been, I don't know, six, seven episodes out of that whole time that I haven't been on the main episode. But next week, I think we'll be one of them. So, uh, well, you will be missed, but we will uh, we will carry on without you. You'll still draw without me. I think the review is going to be Train Spotting Two or T Two, as it's called. Uh, so, isn't that isn't there already a T two? Yeah, I know they, they really did a bad job with the naming. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Slash Film Cast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. All right, everyone, welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark. This is just our time to talk about a variety of random topics that we can't get to during the show or won't get to during the show. Generally, topics that uh, are usually only of value to us alone, and so I don't expect anyone to ever listen to this segment. Yeah, everyone stopped listening already. Yeah, they stopped listening. Brad um, left. Everybody's yeah, every, it's Brad's just gone you. already. It's just, yeah, it's just us. Um, but uh, we will also go over some of your emails, some of your feedback. Uh, you know, oh. one, one piece of feedback that we got, Jeff, from last week was I was reading off the name of donors, right? Mm. Uh, and so a lot of people were asking, is Will Bona from Cockington, United Kingdom, a real person? 
Uh, Will Bona has not emailed us confirming whether or not he's a real person yet. So, uh, but they think, does that does that lead to more thought that he is real or le- thought that he's l- less real? Yeah, what maybe you- he's so insulted by the question that he decided right. not to email us. Uh, <laughs> also, a lot of people were very disappointed that we we brushed right past uh, a listener who emailed in their name as Genitalia. Um, did you pronounce it that way? I, I think I pronounced it Jenny Talia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I, mean, I thought maybe you maybe may said Talia or something. Yeah, but. Talia. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you know, my bad, guys. Talia. My bad. That's we, just... we, but Jeff, you, this is what you've done. You've now entered us into this arms race of donors uh, who are, are going to try and come up with the most preposterous name possible. It brings me such joy, and I think <laughs> for for Jenny. I think Jenny uh, is a is a real winner. If you can slip it past us and not, I don't even get it, that's that is mwah, that's beautiful. Chef's kiss, mwah. yeah, mm, delicious. Uh, all right, Jeff. A uh, couple things we want to talk about. Firstly, uh, Nintendo Switch. We never got to this last week. Hey, before we get to that, though, can I can I just uh, last episode um, we were talking about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming up with uh, the next next series for my wife and I to binge. And uh, I asked you guys for suggestions, and I asked the audience for suggestions. I have gotten such awesome suggestions. So many people have tweeted me and and made uh, you know put real thought into it. And and the thing that I'm so amazed by is how few people have suggested things that I've already seen, which I find to be so cool. I think that means that people are listening. They know what I've already seen. They are you know they're talking about things that we haven't brought up on the show before. So. Uh, I'm really delighted, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who sent in uh, suggestions. I have I have quite the list now. Well, what uh, is on that list, Jeff? Like, what are some of the most commonly suggested things that people tweeted at you in terms of finding your next TV show? Uh, it's 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 a pretty lengthy list. Uh, the ones that got the most recommendations: um, uh, Fleabag on Amazon. Everybody's talking about how cool that that is. Um, very excited to see that. Uh, the Detectorists on Netflix. Hmm. Um, I ha- I got a lot of suggestions for the Detour, which is on TBS. Um, and what else do I got here? Uh, Please like me on Hulu. Um, <laughs> My God, this is just this is just generating degenerating to things you want people to do. Please, <laughs> please like me on Hulu. Um, listen to my podcast on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Love me. For the love of God, love me, which is available on CISO, actually. That <laughs> actually does sound like a CISO show. Um, <laughs> Happen Leonard, uh, Borgen. Borgen's a show I've wanted to watch for a long time. My friends went absolutely nuts ha- for Happen Leonard? Sorry, I missed the other one. What is it Hap and Leonard, yeah. It's a Netflix show. I've not heard of any of these. Right? That's what's so great. I had neither. There's so many of these I did not even know existed, and that is exactly what I was hoping for from the audience. Is like not people are like, oh, you, you know, you should really watch Battlestar Galactica. It's like no, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. Well, good impression uh, of our listeners, by the way. Thank Joe. you, thank Very you. Nicely that's, done. Uh, although a lot of people suggested The Expanse, so uh, I may end up doing that. I don't know if that's one my wife would be into, but um, I definitely should be watching The Expanse. I know that uh, Devendra loves The Expanse as well. Um, I, there's there's more if you want to keep me to keep going. Uh, Toast of London, Inside Number Nine, um, huh? Yeah, Terrace House. Which oh yeah, that one. Uh, that one. That's a Dan Trachtenberg approved recommendation. Yes, so. yes, yes. Yeah. So I have quite the list here. I'm very excited to dive in, and um, I, I'm just really really grateful for the audience to be so thoughtful and uh, considerate when when making these suggestions. It's been great. Cool, cool. 
So, uh, Jeff, I actually heard you talk about Nintendo Switch for a little bit on your DLC podcast, but I uh, thought you might want to share some, some reflections with uh, our listeners here. Uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild sounds like one of the best games ever made, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I, I, you know, I was listening to another podcast today. They were talking about like how Nintendo typically, their games, I was listening to Giant Bomb podcast. They are talking about how like Nintendo games typically are inspired by other Nintendo games, right? Like right. They, that they don't like draw too much from outside influences. Uh, but Breath of the Wild feels like a game where they actually paid attention to all of the gameplay innovations that have happened in the last decade. Yeah, it's wild. It, it's uh, no pun intended. It's, it's almost uh, the it, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, it, uh, it does definitely, you can see DNA from Dark Souls. You can see DNA from other open world games, but they really innovate. And, and for them to continually to be able to look at tried and true franchises that have been around for literally decades and approach them with fresh eyes, bring fresh ideas to the table, switch up the – another pun – switch up the, um, the formula on, on these things. You know, there's a very established Zelda formula and this, this game does it very differently than any other previous Zelda. Uh, all of that is very impressive for a company that you would think would be a little staid at this point, would be you know, not willing to, um, to, to mess with the, the – uh, the uh, what's the what's the term um, the money <laughs> the money horse what <laughs> the, the uh, you know what I'm talking about the money uh, pot no there's a whatever my brain's not working today I um I all week long my wife has been gone so I've been single dad which means I don't get any sleep so uh, forgive me for not being able to think of anything more than usual when I can't think of things money horse <laughs> what's the what's the <laughs> phrase uh I, I don't know I, the, I think I know what you're talking about. It's the thing you're, the thing that brings you all the revenue. Your uh, uh, tries like oh God, what's this? It's the, main something. Uh, the I, the chat room will save us. I know they will. I believe in them. Uh, anyway, prize stallion. <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, it's your uh, main source of revenue. Uh, the thing that <laughs> this is this is some amazing radio. It's torturous, it's torturous. That's okay. No one is listening. Everyone has already. Yeah, they've already all tuned out. So that's fine. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> switch. Are you? Are you? Are you money train? No money train. Just <laughs> <laughs> switch. Did you? Do you want to buy one? Are you uh, hoping to get one? I don't know. I've, it, it doesn't seem like a very cash cow. Yes, cash cow. Yes. <laughs> Cash cow, David. <laughs> Did you just come up with that yourself? Or are you Googling? Or No, I just came up with it. Wow. You know when you, when you stop trying, your brain goes, oh, here's that thing you wanted. Yeah, cash cow. It's nice, that. Nice. Money it horse. Like, Money it was horse. like dollars and some kind of animal. Like, that's what... I, said, I said money horse. And I meant cash cow. That is so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay oh god okay All right. well luckily no one's listening um <laughs> so, are you are you are you interested are you gonna get a switch are you interested in, in getting a switch sorry, David? David? are you there okay okay um you know to be honest jeff it doesn't seem like a good purchase right now 
Well, um, I, I agree, unless you really want to play Zelda and don't own a Wii U. Right, right, because I've heard the Wii U version of Zelda is, like, very close yeah, in terms of gameplay. Yeah, basically the same, yeah. Uh, so, but the I, thing I guess- that's crazy, Dave, is that I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, the thing that's crazy is that this game was clearly designed for the Wii U, and the like weird vestige of that design process is still in the game. Like, you know, I don't know how much you know about the game, but the first thing you get at the beginning is this pad that is clearly meant to represent the <laughs> Wii U gamepad, right. and. There are, you know, one of the main ways that Link like looks at the environment is by holding up the pad and looking through it. And obviously, that was going to be the way it was going to work on Wii U. Is you were going to physically lift the pad and look, look through the, you know, the screen there as as some kind of window into the world. And it's still in the game, and it doesn't work like that on Wii U anymore. And it's and they clearly changed it because it was going to be on Switch now. So it's it's weird. You see these this this like thread that they never finished right you know i was actually considering since the reviews for zelda were so rapturous like it's apparently one of the best games of the year i was thinking of buying an old wii u just to play that game i'm Uh, sure that i I have a feeling that a bunch of people i know that um you know uh gamestop and and places like that were offering trade-in value for wii u to you could put toward your switch i'm sure a lot of people did that so you could probably get uh, I'm sure Wii U's are readily available. Yeah, you can get like a Wii U for like $150 right now, you know, yeah. That's, which is much less than a $300 uh, Nintendo Switch, which you'd ha- need to also buy accessories for and all that stuff. Uh, here's my question about the Nintendo Switch is the promise of this device is that you can plug it into your home TV, you can take it with you, or, you know, set it up at, at a restaurant or on a plane and play it with friends, you know, depending on where you are. Uh, do you feel like you're living in the future? Like, does this does this feel like the future in a way that other systems do not feel like the future? I don't know about the future, but it certainly adds convenience. It's really, really nice, especially with my lifestyle now as as a, as a new dad. It's it's great, and the thing that it, it really captures with that portability, and specifically this game, is the pick up and play and set down. The the thing that actually the DS did really well and 3DS did really well, which is, you know, it goes into standby mode. It, it doesn't take, you know, a minute and a half to boot up or anything. You can pick it up and you can play it for a short period of time and put it back down. And, and that's great. That's great. And this – one of the things I tweeted actually last night uh, in reference to Zelda, it occurred to me that somehow magically they managed to create a game that feels overwhelmingly large and epic and grandiose while at the same time being manageably bite-sized. It is – everything you do in Breath of the Wild is a sort of small gameplay chunk, but it fits into this tapestry of being this massive, overwhelmingly large world. Um, so it, it really does play well as a portable game. It really does uh, emphasize that portability. Uh, you know, I brought my Switch with me to the uh, – to the um, screening of Kong last night thinking if I you know get there early and I can just hang out in my car and play a little bit of play a little bit of Zelda it's it's very convenient which is nice yeah and I guess you don't feel like nervous going out in public with that thing like just it, it's this you know fairly new and expensive piece of equipment that uh well, I'm not gonna leave it laying around but yeah I, mean, I just you know I, I guess I would just be worried that someone would just grab it out of my hands and run away <laughs> 
<laughs> all the time. Has that happened to you before, Dave? No, but I've seen you know I've seen like internet videos of you know th- this person sitting on a subway mm. using their phone, and then someone just like literally grabs it and the, out the subway doors like right as they close. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. Uh, and obviously that one internet video really stuck with me. I but guess you, so. You, but yeah, I don't know. It feels like um, obviously you take your phone with you everywhere, and that's very expensive. Uh, but if it ever gets stolen, you can you know erase your data or whatever. Um, but if someone were to steal your Wii U, you, they could just like resell it easily. I feel. Uh, yeah, that's, I, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But uh, anyway, just a re- just this is just the stuff Dave Chen thinks about yeah. when he's thinking of buying a portable piece of electronics. That's why you like Logan so much. <laughs> <laughs> so overall, it sounds like you're happy with your Nintendo Switch purchase. I mean, it is it is quite literally for me a Zelda machine. Yeah. I, I, I haven't have no desire to play anything else that's available for it right now. Uh, although I'm excited about some of the independent games that they've announced. They announced like 60 plus uh, independent games. Most of them already released on other, in other ways. But I'm hoping that, you know, in the very Nintendo way, we'll have two or three amazing experiences per year on it. And, you know, it'll it'll justify my purchase. But I know that you can put in 100 hours on this Zelda and still not see everything. There is so much to it, so much to do that uh, I'm just having a blast. And it's a very different kind of of experience than, for example, Horizon Zero Dawn, which just came out. I mean, this this is a game that almost just wandering around aimlessly is really the preferred way of, of approaching it. You just, it is about exploration in a way that Zelda's never have been. I don't think. Cool. Well, um, I'm glad you're having a good time with it. Uh, and I, it's not something I'll probably invest in for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, but I am thinking about getting that used Wii U and maybe playing <laughs> Zelda not a, on it. Not a bad way to do it. Yeah. Not a bad way to do it at all. Probably will save you a, a chunk of change, and there's really not going to be much on Switch to play for quite a while. Um, but it, what an amazing time for video games right now! I mean, th- yeah. this this first three months of this year has been just astounding—the level of quality. And if we're going to continue that throughout 2017, it might be one of the best years of games ever. Very cool. Uh, all right, wanted to do some Logan follow-up, Jeff. Um, so before we get to our Logan follow-up, I do want to say we're probably going to be spoiling Logan. So if you don't want to be spoiled on Logan, we're going to give you some ample time right now to stop this recording and come back later after you finish watching Logan. Uh, but I did get this tweet from Christopher. Uh, he was Christopher was responding to our quad, our triple boom. Last week. An Got a un- lot of people who love the triple boom. An unprecedented boom event on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, Christopher <laughs> the boom with, heard around the world. The boom heard around the world. Christopher responds with, a, uh, with this on Twitter. He, he wrote it, this screenshot. It appears to be from uh, Letterboxd. I'm not sure. But it's a review, of, uh, a review of Kate and Leopold written by Christopher Sorgiovanni, who writes, quote, Today I watched the film... Uh, directed by James Mangold and starring Hugh Jackman as a 200-year-old guy who grew up in the 1800s. He spends most of his time now with a younger, strong-willed girl, and he's related to another character played by Leah Schreiber. His character's name begins with the letter L, and he struggles adjusting to his current outlandish predicament. But enough about Logan, guys. <laughs> Quadruple boom. Quadruple boom. Quadruple boom. It's a lot of boom. It's a lot uh, of boom. That's from uh, at Chris 
underscore SRG underscore. Thanks for sending in the quadruple boom, Chris. That's uh, our favorite of all the booms that uh, you know boom. I've received. Uh, How come when Logan uh, is like the plot of 100 movies, uh, people are like, oh, that's cool. But when Avatar is like the plot of 100 movies, people are like, meh, meh, meh. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't have to answer that. I'm asking rhetorically. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. Yeah. O- on that note, by the way, uh, you know, Avatar is really starting to reenter the cultural conversation, Jeff, like in, in, a, in a serious way. It never way. left, Dave. It never left. Uh, there were uh, Super Bowl ad- – was it Super Bowl or was it like Oscars? Was there was Oscars? some ads for the new Disney World Avatar attraction and then this morning – uh, Hollywood Reporter published a piece called James Cameron Goes Inside Walt Disney World's Avatar Attractions. I want to go there so badly. It's in Florida, though. It's not, not out here on the, at Disneyland. It's only at Disney World. The Valley of Moara is filled with lush forests, exotic plants, and floating mountains, plus signs that translate phrases from the film's unique language. The landscape becomes bioluminescent at night, and <sighs> food offerings are vibrantly colorful. How awesome is that? <laughs> That's awesome. This is That's fir- objectively awesome, Dave. Come on. <laughs> objectively awesome. Don't right. you There's think? no question. There's no subjectivity to that at all. No. Uh, John Lando, according to producer John Lando, quote, this is the first time I feel like I'm walking in the movie because when we made the movie, it was a virtual world. We didn't build any of the Pandora sets. End quote. Yeah. That's cool, man. Don't you think, <laughs> Dave, don't you think that this land is going to be a, a real money horse for them? <laughs> Uh, or, or whatever the horse equivalent of the Pandora world is. Like, they rode yeah. those things, right? Uh, not yeah. the Akron. It's the other... You, you, come on, Jeff. Help me out here. You're the Avatar expert here. Who remembers, Dave? I bet you didn't even know Akron was a thing, by the way. No, I didn't know the name of the horse. <laughs> it's true. I did not know the name of the horse thing. Uh, what is the horse in Avatar? Are you asking Siri right now? I'm asking, yeah, I'm asking... Uh, uh, oh, there is an Avatar wiki... Yeah, there uh, is. That uh, documents every single animal in the movie Avatar. That's going to come in handy for five more movies. <laughs> it's called the Dire Horse. Dire. Uh, and yeah, apparently, you know, that's the thing where they like they use their ponytail and blend in with it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, by the way, uh, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but like. Was it ever weird to you that the same thing they use for controlling horses is the same thing they use for Sex. mating? Yeah, yeah. It, I, it did not slip by me. That yes. Yeah. Also, a new uh, Avatar. I, I hope. Play. I hope the Avatar sequels reckon with that troubling. The troubling implications. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have. One of those movies is just going to be all about that. Each of the movies is just. Uh, that's why there's five of them. It's just one aspect of Navi life that's troubling. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, go into it. Yeah. Like the second one is about how. Uh, they have this incredibly important ponytail that has like all these nerve endings in it, but like what? Ha- like they go to war, you know. And yeah. so, what happens if uh, if the ponytail gets chopped off? You know, Oof. that's a college humor skit waiting to happen right there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what were you going to say? There's a new uh, new Avatar video game got announced too. Oh yeah, I'm sure that's going to be good. Well, I we actually reviewed the first Avatar video game on the Totally Rad Show, and I actually played all the way through that thing. It was not good. It was yeah. not good. So. Do you, do you have any f- reason to think this will be better? Um, hope. Does hope count? Hope. Yeah. No, I, I guess. Anyway, it, it does look visually interesting. You know, Dude, the, the, floating, floating rock. How do they make that happen? There's, it looks like <laughs> the rocks are floating. 
And the fact that it turns bioluminescent at night, that's that's rad. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's rad. I mean, I think, Jeff, if this park is successful, it is going to be evidence of the power of marketing and demand generation. You know, because I don't think anyone was dying to see a Pandora Land. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's say I grant you that. Isn't it okay that the 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 coolness of the place actually supersedes the even the love of the IP? Like it's a cool thing. It's just a cool if if this was if this was Disney introduced this and it hadn't it did nothing to do with any film ever. It's just like this new Disney part of Disneyland where you go and there's floating rocks and it turns bioluminescent at night. It's just objectively cool. That's like an amazing thing to be able to walk through. No? Yeah. I mean, if you are into that aesthetic, you know. So- <laughs> if, if floating rocks are your jam? If floating rocks and like neon colors all over nature are, are your thing, then yes, I, I agree. That just getting, you know, it's kind of like how um, some, like, oh, here's an example, like Tron Legacy, right? In yeah. my opinion, pretty terrible movie. Uh, yes. But it gave us a soundtrack that I still revisit because it's epic, right? Right. And so it's it's very frequent that movies end up creating pop culture artifacts that you enjoy mo- more than the movie itself. And Jeff, okay. if, if, Av- if Pandora Land is something you enjoy more than Avatar and that lots of people enjoy more than Avatar, hey, Godspeed, go with God, I'm et, not- et cetera. Okay, fair, but my my point was a little def a little different than that. I'm trying to say that just independently of your opinion about the aesthetic, isn't that isn't that just a, an amazing thing that we have created in real life? No, uh, I, I I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen the pictures of the floating rocks? Yeah, no, I've seen the pictures, but you know, you haven't been there. I've been there. Yeah, well, I can't, prepare I can't to get. Your, you and I should go Kickstarter, Kickstarter yeah. to go to <laughs> Pandora Land. Oh my god, Dave and Jeff. We should make like a like a three episode <laughs> mini video series. You could shoot it. We could do like a little docu series of like me trying to convince you it's awesome and I'd our be, trip to Florida. Let's that would be let's amazing. let's break down this cost, right? Let's is, we could probably do it for like three grand, right? Like just fly I, in don't, there. Don't throw out a number now because I I got I don't know, man. I don't know <laughs> three grand just to get into Disney World. I think it's really expensive. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, Jeff, maybe we can cost this out, and if if listeners really want this, which I don't imagine they do. Well, no one's listening right now, <laughs> but uh, you know, this isn't. <laughs> we're gonna need to get a money horse for this tape. <laughs> oh man! All right, uh, two things I want to mention about uh, about Logan. We, we yeah, wait, wait. Dust, Dustin Carlson in the chat says we could review Wizarding World as well. Oh yeah, twofer a twofer. Because I've never been there. I don't think these could be really – you know, I've been thinking about what my next documentary project is. I, I entered a, do- a short doc into uh, into a bunch of film festivals this year. Uh, I don't think this could be that. I wish it could be though. I wish it could be, Jeff. But this is probably be more like an internet video that like people get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of, of watching someone experience this stuff. Um, but hey, if there's demand, Jeff, we will go where the people send us. Okay. And especially where the people are paying us. So <laughs> – um, in any case, let's move on. Uh, so, uh, oh, Logan. All right. So wanted to cover some Logan stuff. Firstly, uh, I, I wanted to go through a, I, I mean, I, I feel the need to acknowledge that there were a, a bunch of people that leapt to your defense, right? 
and said, uh, you know, that they shared your, shared your opinion of Logan. I was so uh, so heartened by the response that I've gotten over the. I mean, there's some people who are like, "Oh, you broke my heart. How could you?" But many, many, many people said, "Oh, thank you for giving voice to the people who just liked it, who merely liked it." Uh, here's here's something that I, I wish I had articulated a little bit better. So I I I'd said like I'm not even angry. I'm not irritated. I'm just disappointed. And I, I wanted to clarify that statement a little bit more about my disappointment, which is just that it was because of like because we see this movie Logan here, who's, that are that's doing all these interesting things that other superhero films haven't done before. But you seem to be much more happy, or you seem to enjoy much more these movies that play it safe. You know, like mm. Avengers Age of Ultron, which, in my opinion, was a really incoherent movie that I, I did not enjoy that much. That's a movie that you really liked and you said so on the podcast. And right. yet this is a movie that you seem to like less. Logan's movie you seem to like less, but that, in my opinion, is way more innovative in the superhero uh, field, I guess, than, than Avengers Age of Ultron was. And that was confusing and disappointing for me. You know, I, I guess I, mm. that, that's, I wanted to just bring that up and see if you had any thoughts. Like, am, am I mischaracterizing or misunderstanding your opinion? No, and, and I think it, it, it probably points to my bias to the characters in the sense that uh, Age of Ultron, for, for its faults, still presents the characters as I find them most joyous, as I appreciate seeing them most. I, I have – there are still – these awesome, cool character moments with with Hawkeye, and there are you know there's there's these Captain America still doing Captain America type stuff, and there's still it's I just love being around those char- characters that have meant so much to me over my life, and uh, Logan is not a joyous time with those characters. It's not it's not fun to be around. Logan is a, a cantankerous old you know crank in this movie and professor xavier is dropping f-bombs and and despicable in a lot of you know a lot of times and kind of angry and unhappy and maybe maybe that has a lot to do with the fact that i'm just not enjoying being around them i but make no mistake i do appreciate as i said in our review i appreciate where these the the superhero in you know, live action form genre has gone with Legion, with Logan, with Deadpool. Like the fact that we're sort of moving into a place where these these properties can be handled much in a much more daring way and and do some much more interesting things. I'm I'm down for that. I like it. I'm I'm not asking for every movie to be a Marvel Studios movie, and I'm not asking for every superhero experience to be the same kind of experience. I appreciate that. I just didn't enjoy my experience watching Logan as much as I enjoyed my experience watching Age of Ultron. Gotcha. Totally fair. Thank you for, uh, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, all right. I wanted to read this to you, Jeff, because it really struck me. You know, Logan has a lot of metaphors. X-Men has a lot of metaphors, allegory in it. Yes. And this is one I uh, read and, and uh, reblogged on my, my website, DaveChen.net, that I thought, like, really, when I read it, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is it. That, like, I, it's so obvious. I don't know why I didn't articulate it or think of it that way before, but, uh, but that's it. Anyway, I wanted to read this, uh, this uh, piece. It's by Micah Peters from The Ringer. And he wrote an article called Fathers and Wolverines. I'm going to read a a piece to you uh, from it. Um, 
he writes here, when Logan begins, there's any number of directions it could take. It could be a sullen cogitation on violence, a protest piece in the age of Trumpism. Uh, it's not a coincidence that most non-Wolverine characters are young, non-white, and targeted. A prestige drama about death and loss. It is all of these at various points, but the film it chooses to be makes it a superhero movie I've been waiting 17 years for. At its core, Logan is about hard-earned pessimism, the inertia in which it suspends you, and the practical difficulty of overcoming both. The vehicle for overcoming that pessimism and inertia is fatherhood. About a quarter into the movie, Logan's charge of caring for a young girl with adamantium claws who, like him, is given to fits of homicidal rage. Exhausted by life and waiting impatiently to die, he doesn't want to be the one to teach Laura Kinney or X-23 how to quell these urges, but there's no one else to do the job. The scene that appears in the trailer where Charles croaks from the back seat that someone has come along turns out to be in reference to a family who was, uh, whose truck was run off the road, but really it's an epigram for the movie, a call to lead by example. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was uh, it was fascinating. Like this idea that like fatherhood, jo- like you your life can be in a complete state of disrepair and a disaster, and you might not give a shit about yourself or the world anymore. But that fatherhood can be this thing that regalvanizes you in ways that you hadn't otherwise imagined. Um, yeah, didn't know if you felt that way, you know, as a reality, or or if you felt like the movie did a good job of bringing that to light. Wow. Um, heavy stuff. I think that uh, those are two separate discussions for me and, and I'm happy to, to dive into both. I mean I think as someone who had his first child at the end of 2016 in America, <laughs> I am definitely living that theme, right? That idea of hard-earned pessimism and feeling a sense of – of foreboding uh, <laughs> potential, uh, you know, the, this idea that the, the world is uh, not the place you want to bring a child into, yeah. <laughs> and then doing that and having that revitalize and give purpose in a way that you've never felt before. I, I certainly feel that I certainly um, am living that every day and it's not it's not one thing it's not one direction it's not one feeling like oh my god I feel revitalized it's uh, wavering every day it's like oh my god am I the worst person ever for bringing a kid into this world that you know you know environmentally we're headed down a path to oblivion socially we're in a place where people are seem to be hating each other more than loving each other all these you know maybe hippy dippy ideas, but certainly ideas that I feel to my very core that I definitely am concerned about. I definitely think about every day when my son wakes up, am I, am I, did I do him a disservice by bringing him into this? And then the other side of going, oh my God, this is why I take breath every day is to be a father to this boy and to teach him and, and give him a, a sense of moral compass and a, and a, uh, to impart any kind of wisdom I've gained from my years of being on this earth and all, all those things, you know, all those cliches. So that is cert- certainly something that I'm experiencing in a very real way. I wish I got that more from the movie. Maybe it would have landed on me in a more powerful way. I, I respect those that do, that did get that. I know a lot of people w- w- felt that and felt 
that father, I mean, a lot of the feedback that I've gotten this week is like, how, Jeff, how could you have felt that way being a new dad and all this stuff? Like how, why didn't this movie hit you? You know, fatherhood and, and, um, fathers and, and their children in movies often are the things that I resonate with very strongly. I don't know. I can't put my finger on why it didn't happen this time. Um, but I think maybe my fanboyism got in the way, perhaps. I don't know. How, how, fanboyism of what, though? Just sort of my my feeling about the characters, like the baggage that the characters bring to the table. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing there because I, f- I feel like that's the what I'm going to hear from the audience uh, of, of this episode. P- people aren't listening right now, but, it, but anybody that might be, uh, I think that – I think I get accused of of that a lot, and and maybe there's some truth there that that my my baggage with superhero like characters that you, that you want the characters to be a certain way. You have, yeah. you have preconceived notions of what they should be. And yeah. If they don't live up to that, then it somehow is not as good as if they were that way. Correct. Yeah. And and that and I think that you know when I talked about Logan feeling like the, an Elseworlds tale or a what if tale, feeling like uh, yeah, you can take these characters and put them in a situation, but that's not the real version of these characters. Yeah, interesting. Um, and, and for for people who aren't as like devoted to the comics as you are, such as myself, uh, it doesn't feel that way. You know, it just feels like right. this is the next step of that character. You know, mm, it doesn't feel yeah. like here's some imagining of what it is. Right. Um, but in any case, and, and part of it is that the comics, you know, those characters, like, is Wolverine still, you know, a vibrant and changing character in comics now? Is he? Well, I don't think in comics and vibrant and changing don't tend to go. <laughs> you know, comics is about, you know, consistency and the fact sure, that. Sure, I, I just mean, a... is he still a character that's being published regularly? You know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, Logan probably differs dramatically from, like, how he's being uh, depicted now, right? Right. Yeah. Um, did you have that takeaway from it? I mean, I I feel like my my you know boom goes the dynamite last week when I compared it to um, Last of Us. Yeah. I feel like Last of Us landed on me much more profoundly than Logan did, and it and, and it's it basically doing the same kind of thing. But maybe it's because you know I didn't have any expectations for Ellie and what's his name. Um, I don't know. Did did it, did you come away from the movie feeling? The way that that described, uh, not not really about fatherhood specifically. Um, I think what was most moving to me about Logan was the idea that this is a person who had never really experienced love, you know, and that's why they had that. Like I thought the, you know, not to keep harping on the comparison, but I thought the farmhouse scene in Logan was far more effective to me than the fairly similar scene in Avengers: Age of Ultron, you know. Uh, that mm. this is showing him what like a normal life would be like, and uh, you know, uh, Professor Xavier saying, you know, you still have time, right? Like you, st- you, st- it's not too late for anyone, no matter what crimes you've committed or what sins you've done. Like it's you still have time to experience what love is, what family is. Um, that idea is very profound to me. You know that mm. that like this person beyond redemption, like so so not so much like the fatherhood like galvanizes you out of it. Um, although the reason I read that that excerpt is because thinking about it, it really does strike me as as a, a as a fatherhood allegory. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the the whole family thing that really did get to me, especially because that whole family that they visit like gets brutally slaughtered. So yeah, <laughs> I, I just wish it didn't. I, I thought it was a cheap. Um, way to do it with having it be, you know, young Logan. I, I, I just, and, and having, I just felt like it was a, 
a cheap way for me to to be fooled into feeling something because they are they believe they're being murdered by him. Hmm. You know, I just I don't know. I, I think the 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 thrust of that scene that I came in with is just that like it's his fault in some way that they're being like it's a young version of him, but it's also like they wouldn't be there if it weren't for him. You know what I mean? So. To me, the scene did its job in terms of like, hey, death and destruction follows him wherever he goes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, totally can understand why uh, uh, that's part of the movie, like him facing off himself, like against himself, younger version. Like, I totally understand why that part is frustrating or annoying to people. Yeah. Wanted to read this email from Steve Alvarez, uh, who wrote it to slash from com. This is the last thing we'll do. Um, Steve writes in as Jeff would say I've been a Marvel zombie from way back and I regret to add I've hated every single one of Brian Singer's X-Men films as well as The Last Stand and, and Wolverine Origins these films had always felt like they were merely about characters with superpower superficial battles and catchphrases the exception was Matthew Vaughn's X-Men First Class um, needless to say I was cautiously optimistic about Logan by the time we got to the scene on the farm in Logan I'd already decided this was easily the best X-Men film of them all perhaps one of the best t- comic book genre films to date on the farm, I had incorrectly assumed the film was near its end. By this point, there had already been so much earthly pain and suffering throughout the film, wonderfully expressed through great writing and appropriate amount of humor and excellent acting by a convincing cast. Of course, I was wrong about the ending, and the film continued. Eventually, we got to the scenes in the woods of North Dakota, and as promised, Logan, the X-Men we connected with most, finally began to die. Somewhat unexpectedly, I found myself holding back tears. But I wasn't prepared for when Laura cried out, Daddy. That is when I completely lost it. Right there, next to seven of my friends. And all the triggers throughout the movie began an unrelenting assault on my emotions to the soundtrack of Johnny Cash, a singer, a late father figure of mine had loved. Long before I met my wife, I dared to prepare for a life of fatherhood. I thought about what type of job would best afford me time, training, and adequate income. Within a year of meeting my wife, we began to discuss where we would raise our child, what values we would instill, and how we'd manage as many of life's curveballs as our imagination could conjure up. Sort of like a mental danger room, if you will. For the past eight years, uh, for the past eight months or so, my wife and I have started visiting medical professionals, discovering that it may not be so simple for us. And then the unimaginable happened. Suddenly, we were living in a country that had changed its trajectory. And my wife's greatest fear of raising a child in the country where Trayvon Martin's killer walks free became my own fears multiplied. In the past few months, I did what any self-respecting, progressive, minority, feminist, empathetic human being would do. I marched. I wrote letters to representatives. I educated. I donated time and money. But I also did one other thing. I grew curious about how other countries are responding to the Syrian refugee crisis and why Canadians appeared so welcoming and tolerant. I learned about how the Great North identified with the values of multiculturalism and had maintained a very inclusive immigration policy. And I began to ask myself if my parents could both independently immigrate to this country with hopes of finding a better future for themselves and their unborn children, why should I feel too embarrassed to do the same? For weeks, I've been wrestling with the idea of staying and fighting to make this country a more hospitable place for my unborn child versus finding them a home that's welcoming, sparing them the fate of having to fight for recognition, dignity, safety, and humanity. And then there's Hugh Jackman on an IMAX screen performing a much more literal, much more dramatic version of the debate that's playing out in my mind. This is the main reason I loved the X-Men growing up. To me, they weren't just characters with extraordinary talents, fighting superficial battles that ended in catchphrases. They were members of a minority class with their own civil rights leader, some advocating for peace, some struggling with their temptation to radicalize, given their extraordinary abilities. One of the key elements that previous X-Men films seemed to lack was an earthly depiction of the pain that comes with persecution. End quote. That email comes in from Steve Alvarez. Beautiful. Beautiful email. 
Um, and, uh, you know, he points out one of the themes that the X-Men movies have always had, which is it, it is in large part, or X-Men comics, X-Men movies, it has been in large part about the minority experience, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's about people hate you. They think you're different. They are passing legislation to come after you, to abridge right. your rights. And uh, what are you going to do about it? You have you have a couple. You have a bunch of choices. You can stay and fight uh, for you know truth, liberty, the American way, or you can give up, or you can try and harm these people, you know, in, right. in some really awful way. Um, and yeah, you know, when I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, well, it just Logan feels in some ways like the culmination of a lot of those themes, you know, um, over the course of the last few X-Men films. And it feels like a fitting culmination given uh, the current political environment we live in. So, yeah, As a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, when I was, you know, into the X-Men and I had a Wolverine poster on my bedroom wall, I mean, my friends had, you know, car posters or jet posters. Or I had, you know, Art Adams drawing Wolverine. Um, and I loved the Wolverine. I mean, Chris Claremont's run on on X Men is it, 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 there was nothing more precious to me at that time. I certainly didn't have the minority American perspective, but the thing that's so beautiful about allegory, right, is that it works for any kind of experience. Because I, as a nerd, as somebody who was literally you know chased home and and beat up and stuff. I related to it on that level. Right. I thought I was I was somebody that was ostracized because of the way I was, you know, because I liked nerd stuff and was, you know, raised my hand in class and wanted to answer the question and all that stuff. And obviously, you know, not as profound an experience as uh, as the one you described and you know I, there are certainly a gradient there but I was able to relate to it and I was able to relate to those characters and I think that it's you know clearly the when those first X-Men movies were coming out was a different time a different cultural moment and certainly as you know Brian Singer as the director I think and the fact that it was coming out at a specific time I think the prevalent metaphor was for homosexual rights right? right was 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 the was that was the sort of central theme the central um cultural battle happening around those years Cer- certainly in x2 it was pretty explicitly about that in my opinion and uh, brian singer himself is uh, is gay so right um yeah and and i think and i, th- I think that's you know that was great that those movies could speak to that as as gay rights were such a big part of the cultural conversation you know and, and it seems seems crazy now that it was such a big deal because it's such a a given now it's, uh, yeah i mean it's definitely more given uh it seems like we're gonna have to refight a lot of battles sure yeah especially with that ahead. vice president but yeah. um but I, I, the, one of the things that i admire most about logan is that it takes i mean it very much is about immigration it's about you know going across the border <laughs> quite literally the last the end act of the film is about crossing a border right yeah. um and i love that about it i love that it was it was about you know a lot of those kids at the end are minority kids it, it it speaks directly to the issues of today and i think that's what works so well with science fiction and genre storytelling in general when it's when it's at its best it really is an allegory for real 
things that will resonate. And even if you don't, you don't connect to it on a, on a conscious level, if you're, you know, like I was a 10 year old kid who just kind of was relating to it on my own way, it still is a lesson learned. And I think that's a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, I agree completely. And I think, one of the strengths of Logan is that, you know, this battle, the civil rights battle, whatever you want to call it, whatever battle you're fighting that you relate to, Logan is a film that really shows you the cost of it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what listener Steve was writing in about. And um, and one of the many reasons I found the movie so uh, powerful and effective. So keep those emails coming in, slash filmcast.gmail.com. Uh, thanks to the, you know, 18 people who lasted this long in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> still listening. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Or you guys, you'll see without me. Uh, Jeff and Devendra will be here. Yeah, Dave, have a great vacation, buddy. I'll try, you gonna, man. Are you uh, you going to share what you're going to be doing? Yeah, I'll, uh, heading to Hawaii. So amazing, uh, yeah, wonderful. Going to take a lot of photos. Uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dave Chensky if you want to see those. But uh, cool. Yeah, enjoy. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you guys soon. Uh, enjoy Train Spotting Two without me. <laughs>